would to the book of Isaiah chapter 60. And if you see somebody without a Bible in their hands, put one in their hands, please. Going to need it today. Today, as I'm sure you know, we are celebrating the first week in the Advent calendar. You know what's funny is that usually when I preach, I put my left hand in my pocket, and now I'm realizing I can't do that. Something you learn. Anyway, um, <laughs> we're in the first week of the Advent calendar. For centuries, Christians have used this season of expectation as a reminder. A reminder that we worship a God who keeps his promises. He is a God who has shown us a great light. And we'll see that from our text this morning, the light is going to attract family. Blood relatives and in-laws and Edna and cousin Eddie, people that we didn't even expect to show up, are here. We'll see that this light isn't just an ancient religious poem of a people that have been exploited and abused by the world around them. It is a pure and authentic hope that not only had very real things to say to God's people in the 6th century B.C., uh, but also has very real things to say to God's people living in the 21st century. So here we go. Isaiah 60. Uh, chapter 60 is sort of situated in the middle of the third act of Isaiah. The historical backdrop is Israel's continued return from exile and the theological discussion that that prompts. After years of pain and suffering, of losing their identity at the hands of their oppressors, where does our cope come from now? What is it that we, the people of Israel, have to look forward to? Chapter 60 and the two chapters that follow it constitute language that issue this sweeping, glorious, hope-filled promise to the needful community in the 6th century of Israel, B.C. One scholar commented that they reflect unqualified and undisputed buoyancy about the future. Our text today talks about how the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who heard the cry of his people and led them out of Egypt and into the promised land, will in time restore their land even after something as horrible as the Babylonian exile. Chapter 60 is a relatively long poem that takes the form of what we call a divine oracle, one that speaks from God's own point of view, and spells out his unmitigated resolve to work goodness in and through Jerusalem in a way that will reflect Israel's safety, prosperity, abundance, and preeminence among the nations. Jerusalem is not an empty space. The picture here is a sustained offer of good news. This is language that is perhaps better than anything they've ever heard before. It's language that may seem too good to be true, but I think it's also language that will encourage the 21st century Christian to ask, could this possibly be a picture that is too good not to be true? Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. This is a dramatic announcement of the primary theme that is to follow. Rise and shine. It's a, it's a double imperative. What's about to come is this command about not only receiving God's light, but also reflecting it. They are to rise out of this disparity, 
this depression, this oppression that has filled their lives, that has seemed to speak to their identity. They are to rise out of that and then shine, to look to the hope and the buoyancy of a future that actually is hopeful. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth and the deep darkness the people, but the Lord will arise over you and his glory will be seen upon you. See, see, darkness is a reality. No one's questioning that. Many from Israel had been ripped away from their land and their temple was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. Their land and their worship defined them. It gave them an identity like nothing else and now that was stolen from them. The thing about darkness, as those of you with seasonal affective disorder can attest, is that it penetrates you. Well, they elicit, um, what, what it elicits is not just an outward expression. It is this, seems to be this inward reality, or at least that's the lie. The world is in darkness, but God's light shines on his people. Although the people have been beset by this negativity, Jerusalem, by concept, is the recipient of this dynamic love from the living God. The truth is that when this love gets going, it's going to spread like wildfire. The Gentiles shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar. Your daughters shall be nursed at your side. The Gentiles. Well, I suppose. Cousin Eddie. Here is the first hint in the chapter that maybe, maybe, maybe we're talking about something bigger than what maybe we initially realized. Not only will the Gentiles be attracted to Zion's like, but kings will as well. It begins this restoration language. These are hopeful words that aren't just of God's work, but of the work that God will do through his people. Then you shall see and become radiant. And your heart shall swell with joy because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the Gentiles shall come to you. The multitude of camels shall cover your land. The dromedaries of Midian and Ephath, the desert tribes famous for caravans and trade. All those from Sheba who are known for their wealth shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense. And they shall proclaim the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Qadar, Arabia, shall be gathered to, together to you. The rams of Nebaioth, related to the descendants of Abraham's son Ishmael, shall minister to you. They shall ascend with acceptance on my altar, and I will glorify the house of my glory. As with the start of this chapter, Jerusalem receives a double imperative in verse 4. Lift up your eyes and look around. Lift up your eyes and look around. Coming out of despair and into hope. When Jerusalem does this, when the, they open their eyes and look, they see this great caravan of nations all coming to recover uh, to the recovering city. They say, bring your sons, your daughters, the last of the scattered, exiled Jews, and apparently even Gentiles from all parts of the world. They bring the wealth and abundance of the nations. For as long as anyone can remember, Israel paid tribute to others starting with the Egyptians, of course, and then years later with the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians. And now this promise um, is that the process will reverse. 
The text speaks of the best those nations have to offer. There is something about the Jerusalem that is to come that will bring the nations not only to its knees, but also to a new sense of direction and purpose. All of this points in the direction of the house of my glory. There is theological submission to Yahweh implied, but also a political submission to Israel. National well-being, somehow, is being intimately connected with theological authorization of Yahweh. Yahweh. There, there is kingdom work at play here. What sort of kingdom are we talking about? What sort of king could be trusted with such a task? Who are those who fly like a cloud and like doves to their roosts? Surely the coastland shall wait for me and the ships of Tarshish shall come first to bring your sons from afar, their silver and their gold with them to the name of the Lord your God and to the Holy One of Israel because he has glorified you. This is about the resumption of maritime trade. A key component of this restoration is the homecoming from the Mediterranean world of sailing and shipping. This is going to speak to the enormous wealth generated by commerce, all facilitated by the Holy One of Israel. The sons of foreigners shall build up your walls and their king shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Maybe this is a reference to the king of Tyre helping to build the first temple and the kings of Persia to the second. But it's asserting that foreign kings are going to serve Mount Zion and worship God. Therefore, your gates shall be open continually. They shall not be shut day or night that men may bring to you the wealth of the Gentiles and their kings in procession. For the nations and kingdom which will not serve you shall perish, and those nations shall be utterly ruined. See, instead of attacking, the nations will bring tribute day and night in, in busy ports and endless loading docks. Nations that stand in oppression to this progress are going to perish. They are going to be utterly ruined. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the pine, the box tree together to beautify the place of my sanctuary. And I will make the place of my glorious of my feet glorious. And the sons of you who afflicted you shall come bowing to you. And all those who despised you shall fall prostrate at the soles of your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, Zion, the Holy One of Israel, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated so that no one went through you, I will make you an an eternal excellence, a joy of many nations. An eternal excellence? Well, that's encouraging. You shall drink the milk of the Gentiles and and milk the breasts of kings, figurative language for wealth. You shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob, Instead of bronze, I'll bring gold. Instead of iron, I'll bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. Hear this personification. I will also make your officers peace. And I'll make your magistrates righteousness. Anybody watching that Mankind documentary? It's good. Anyway, on the History Channel. (laughs) Bronze and iron are an important material used for making tools and weapons. Each material listed is replaced by one stronger and more valuable. One scholar puts it like this. Sorry times are kept sorry because of the sorry stuff that men are obliged to make use of if they want to stay alive. It must be substitutes all along the line. A life vexatious, constricted, and wretched. 
when the finer stuffs which are not to be had take on an importance that is more material, more than material, because they become symbols of a freer and fairer life. The analogy is that the cultural and social life of the country will be raised beyond what even King Solomon knew. Whatever you were before, that's nothing compared to what God's going to do now in the days ahead. Whatever the interim fulfillments of this prophecy, of course, we're looking ultimately to the splendor of the new Jerusalem described in Revelation 21. Violence shall no longer be heard in your land, neither wasting nor destruction within your borders, but you shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. Pointing in the direction of Christ and his kingdom, the God who is scattered is now the God who will gather gather not only the Jews scattered from around the Fertile Crescent, but also the vast wealth of the nations that have up to this point exploited and abused Jerusalem. In fact, it seems that from these texts that the poet is telling us that um, the only way for a nation to prosper or even survive is to be intimately involved with the enhancement of God's kingdom. The sun shall no longer be your light by day, nor the brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be to you an everlasting light and your and your God, your glory. Your sun shall no longer go down, nor shall your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light and the days of your mourning shall be ended. Also, your people shall be all righteous. Your people shall all be righteous. Every now and then one of these lines just go, what? They shall inherit the land forever, a branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. A little one shall become a thousand, and a small one shall become a strong nation. I, the Lord, will hasten it in its time. See, with all that hope that comes forward is the reverse language in regards to the political and economic structures. Now we get language that speaks of The created order, the sun and the moon, God will see to it that there is no more darkness, no more light, no more threats, no more loss of control, for God will be the light perpetual. No more exile for Jerusalem, no more of the chains and shackles that enslave God's people yesterday, today, or tomorrow. The perpetual light that exists in God's kingdom is about nothing less than new creation. The hope that is described here, it's a real hope. Not one that is simply meant to calm the nerves of a small and helpless civilization. Rather, we have a God, a living God that has spoken quite honestly about the past, that his people have suffered through, and then offered an authentic hope that rises above any nation, any government, any business, any system, any religion. God's hope is pure. God's hope is real. What we're talking about here is actual hope. And anything less than that, people, is idolatry. Anything that stands in the opposition to the love God has for his people will perish and will be utterly ruined. And that includes your beloved traditions and rituals. 
I think that when we're faced with texts like this, we have to ask ourselves how we spend our days, how we spend our money, how we worship, how we preach. Is all of this based on a hope that we actually believe is real? I mean, the church aside, I mean, going to church aside, you really believe this is real, right? Because if you don't, then that's something to consider. Friends, I believe that we gather on Sundays to worship a God who is alive and dynamic in our midst. And I believe that we gather to remind each other to point in the direction of the new creation. We have a responsibility to our God. We have a responsibility to each other to point in the direction of new creation. I cannot thank uh, New Hope and you all enough for licensing me and um, for being committed to uh, my personal growth. Um, The friendships and the family that uh, exists in this room for me, it brings me to tears. Um, I just, I have to say thank you. I have to say thank you to each and every one of you, even the ones that I don't know. (laughs) Because I believe wholeheartedly that God is intimately at work in this body. Um, I see that in my family. I see that in, in my house church. I see that at my job. I see that everywhere I go, that God is involved. And that the hope is real. So all I can say is that this licensing, this robe, this whatever you want to say, all of this is nothing if it doesn't point to actual hope. To the real hope that's coming from a living, dynamic God who is radically interested in showing me his love. In the same way, we're about to enter into this season of Advent. We're about to talk about the Christmas season, this season of expectation, believing that God actually is going to come through with his promises. And that may look, as Jesus' disciples found out, not exactly the way that they were expecting. It might not look exactly the way you were expecting. I believe that Jesus wants nothing more than our lives. And I hope that this Advent season i got to be honest, tell you a little secret. I love Christmas. A lot of people don't think I, I, you know, grumpy or whatever, but I really love Christmas. I love the songs. I love the decorations. All of that is just, I, I really do love it because I think that it can help us to point in the direction of new creation. I think it can help point in the direction of real, authentic hope. And sure, all kinds of things get in the way. We're human beings. We're sinful human beings, but... I believe that these things, these traditions that we have, can point in the right direction. Friends, we have a responsibility to look at each other and help remind each other that we are pointing in that direction. That's what Advent's about. And in the same way, on the night he was betrayed, Jesus instituted the communion and called us to the Mass, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, whatever you want to call it. As they were eating, see, Jesus took bread, and he blessed it. Oh, you know what? I don't read that yet, do I? I'm sorry. 
It's the first time I've ever done this. Sorry. This is what I have to say. Our communion table at New Hope is an open table. I'll get to the Matthew bit in a bit. I just got carried away. Our communion table at New Hope is an open table, and we invite all those who call upon the name of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior to come forward. If you do not worship Jesus as King, you should not feel obligated to participate. The bread is unleavened, the red is uh, wine, and the white is grape juice. And now please stand and join as churches throughout the centuries have done in the reading of the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made for us and for our salvation, He came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life to come. 